If the Bible's got you tied in knots If you're burdened with religious thoughts Come grab a drink and join the choir It's Heretic Happy Hour well, well, well. Hello, buckaroos and buckarettes. Welcome to the Heretic Happy Hour podcast. We are deep into our parable series. This is our third episode. And my name is, yeah, you love it. The kids love it. The kids love it. Uh, my name is Keith Giles. I am one of your co-hosts here on the Heretic Happy Hour podcast. I am the author of the Jesus Un series of books, most recently Jesus Unforsaken. Uh, which takes some shots at the penal substitutionary atonement theory and gives us a better way of, yes, a better way of thinking about the cross than the idea that, you know, God sacrificed himself to himself to appease himself so he could forgive us and save us from himself. No, not that. Something better. Anyway, um, I'm joined by my co-host, Katie, Derek, and Matt, and they just cannot wait to say hello and introduce themselves. So let her rip. Hey everyone, I am Katie Valentine. I'm the founder of the Metaphysical Christian uh, Facebook group, and I'm really excited. I'm uh, also the founder of a brand new platform that's just about to launch called Thresholds of the Soul. So uh, a little bit more about that uh, as we as it grows. So uh, come on over to Facebook where you can find all of those groups too. But happy to be here, really excited about tonight's topic. And I'm Derek Day, and uh, I just have to say this, that Keith said penal. <laughs> uh, anyway, I'm the author of Deconstructing Religion, um, the uh, the author of the Love Minus Religion blog on Pathios, uh, and um, also, let's see what else, the Forward Podcast, and I'm working on a book called, I don't know, uh, it's about love. That's my love. That's I, that's pretty much what I'll say. But uh, and I'm definitely not Katie Valentine. Hey, Derek. <laughs> no, she she's much 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 more wonderful person than I am. I don't think do people confuse the two of you because like <laughs> that no no not, not 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 by a long shot. I'm no, just ever. I'm just clearing that up because I want to say how wonderful Katie is. That's all. I, now, Derek, I want a mashup of the two of us now. Like. Or we superimpose our faces. There you oh go. My God. There, you go. there you go. Please, Katie, no beard. No beard, Katie. No, beard. <laughs> yeah, no promises. Well, I'm, I'm Matt DiStefano, the uh, the fourth member, and I am uh, the author of uh, multiple books. I got another podcast called The Bonfire Sessions, and I am excited <laughs> to let our lovely listeners know that the book that we wrote that we talked about last episode before, <laughs> that one. That book, <laughs> Before You Lose yeah. Your Mind, is an am. Thank, thank you to all of our listeners and everyone who bought the book. It is an Amazon bestseller in multiple categories. Woo-hoo! It is, yeah, uh, I mean, the Gospel Coalition's got to be recognizing, right? So uh, we, we're doing something, right? And it's resonating with people. I just want to say thank you so much for those who bought it. If you have purchased it, if you liked it, if you didn't like it, like, go give us a review and a rating because the, the, the conversation about deconstruction, which is why we put the book together, is really important. So we want to make sure to get that conversation going. And I'm just super stoked that, uh, that it's doing so well and it seems to resonate with folks. Yeah, I mean, it came the day it released, it was hit. It was number one. It released in the number one slot Hell on the day yeah. release. And it's still number one uh, as of showtime. 
And um, and by the way, I need to make sure people understand this because the the Kindle edition is ninety nine cents. Some people, even even some of the reviews we've had, have said things like, "Oh, it's only ninety nine cents right now." Like, I want people to understand it will always be ninety nine cents. It's only ninety nine cents. It will forever be ninety nine cents. That is not a sale price. That is the price forever. Uh, the print edition is nine ninety nine. We're doing our best to make this as affordable as possible. We want as many people as possible to get their hands on this really great book. I mean, there's some incredible stuff in there. Each of us contribute chapters. And in, in addition to the chapters we contributed, a lot of amazing people, also a lot of choir yep. authors also contributed. So yeah, check it out. And I had a significant question come into me about the book. Someone asked in my Facebook group, if I've already lost my mind because of all of this stuff, can, will the book still be helpful? And I assure them that, yes, it will, no matter what stage you are in and losing your mind about your religious deconstruction, there's something there for you. That's right. There's something there for everybody. And guess what? That means that it's time for the hotline. There is a hotline. If you want to get in touch with these heretics, these fine heretic, heretical minds, Give us a call at 240-343-7379. And we have a voicemail, so roll that beautiful voicemail footage. Hello, uh, this is Elena. I just had a question. Um, I know that Matt has talked about mimesis and has talked about how imitate positive mimesis, I think he called it, can help us become more loving and, you know, imitating Jesus. And in other circles of deconstruction, I've also heard that it's important to learn to listen to one's own voice and one's own desires, even if those desires are desires for pleasurable things. And so I'm wondering, do you see a conflict between desiring to and wanting to imitate a God who is sacrificially loving in Jesus and also learning to listen to uh, respect our own voice, our own desires as not sinful and perhaps good. Uh, thank you so much for your consideration. I really appreciate it and have a great day. Well, uh, thank you, Elena. By the way, I think I remember you. I think we talked to you a while back and uh, Elena, you're an amazing person. So I'm just so grateful that you're still listening and submitting great questions. So, so Matt, I think she actually was kind of directing that question towards something you had said. So we'll let you take a first crack at that. Um, yeah, it's a fantastic question. I, um, you know, it's one of those things. I don't think the two necessarily are mutually exclusive or juxtaposed. And I think that's, um, I, I don't understand why, why Christians often, um, and I'm not saying Elena does this, but we kind of, we kind of forget about like the spirit, uh, the, the spirit within us, the fact that, um, I think that's what that voice is in us that, um, that, that leads us to be more like Christ or more like God or more like Jesus. And I think that the two don't have to run counter. I think Jesus talked a lot about following him um, in a culture that was obviously specific to his time. And I think we can still imitate him to some degree, but I, I, I don't necessarily think we have to imitate Jesus in every regard. Um, I think there are other figures who may even be more contemporary or more helpful in our current context, but I know that's going to rub people the wrong way, but like, I, I don't know how, I don't know how Jesus would approach modern issues entirely, 
But I do think I, th- I do think Jesus' um, way of nonviolence is worth imitating. I don't think it runs counter to the voice inside, though, that that leads us towards goodness and mercy and compassion. Um, I think that voice is the same voice maybe Jesus used to follow God or to imitate God. And I honestly am to a place where Jesus, to me, and Katie likes to ask our guests this all the time, who is Jesus to you? Jesus, to me, I think approaches it the same way I would. Like, I, I try to imitate love. I try to imitate what I think God is like. And I try to have the same God in that way where Jesus says, I only see what the Father doing. Well, I'm only trying to do that too. But Jesus is an icon, but not necessarily the only one. Yeah, I like that. I, I was going to say something similar. Like, I think it, it the two aren't mutually excu- exclusive, but it is good to have the discussion because I think a lot of times I, I hear Christians well-meaning, but saying the reason why you should follow Jesus is because you can't trust yourself. And that, you know, that whole thing about how the heart is deceitfully wicked and there's nothing good in me and the heart is evil. Who can know it? And all these, my thoughts are evil all of the time and all these kind of, kind of ideas scripturally. Yet, which um, made me want to gag. And to me, those, those kinds of ideas lead to and feed into what I call worm theology which is this idea, what a worm I am, what a wretch I am. There's, you know, that kind of nothing good in me thing. And it kind of, you're like, you're beating yourself down as if somehow that is making God better. Um, but it doesn't, it just kind of beats people down. So I, I would say absolutely. Yes, you can trust yourself. Yes, you can know truth. Um, and, and, uh, because of that, you know, you, it makes it easier for you to recognize in Jesus the things that are also good and noble and, and, and praiseworthy and worth, worthy to follow. But I agree with you, Matt. It doesn't, it isn't, it's not only Jesus, but I think there is something in this mimetic discussion, um, the idea of mimesis, that human beings are mimetic. And so we probably do need some, something to follow, some, some standard that we would say, okay, this is what I want to be like. This is, this is something that's more, um, this is better, right? This is something more positive. And, um, Jesus is a great place to start, um, but may not be the only one. Maybe there's others that you can add to that that are also would be Christ-like. Uh, but not, again, I wouldn't think it's just limited to Jesus. Yeah, I love the tune I heard in there about um, finding your own heart, finding your own intuition, and also want to affirm that um, I think that's what Jesus taught us to do. Not only taught us, but teaches, because Jesus is not contained only within the New Testament, right? Jesus is, um, or at least I, I'll, I'll speak only for myself, I worship the living Christ. So Christ is always showing me new ways to be um, so that my mesis um, may, be, may begin in the pages of the Bible, but it certainly doesn't end there. But there was another, another thing that I heard that I want to speak to, which is um, sacrificially loving. And it may be worthwhile to explore other ways to see God other than um, as, as someone who sacrifices, especially sacrifices um, his own son. Um, and because that sacrificial loving concept is unequally applied to women to be self-sacrificers and do it in the name of love. And there are, I think there are other ways to be and maybe other ways that we can be mimetic um, in looking at the, at the gospel story um, that may be more life-affirming or, or maybe um, companionably life-affirming alongside the sacrificial model. Personally, I think that if we simply focus on being the best authentic version of ourselves that there's nothing to be mimetic of uh, I, I think that 
they're trying to mimic Jesus often sets people up for failure because it's uh you're you're judging yourself against a perfect standard and and that's doomed to fail. So for me personally, what I like to do is I refer to my bracelet that says what would Keith Giles do? Oh jeez. <laughs> you have the you have the only copy of that in existence, I believe. I, I don't even wear one of those. But you're my hero, Keith. Oh no, no, don't do we, that. We should uh, we should make wristbands with all of our names on there. WW, and then insert all of our names and sell there you them. Go. What would Katie and do? People can what just would... follow us like the cult members that they are. Yes, of course. Like, look, I always tell people, I'm not your guru. I don't want to be anybody's guru. And, and the thing is, I don't think you need a guru. I actually would say, you. And what I would love to see people get to as they're going through deconstruction of their faith is to get to a place where they don't need some other person. Bible teacher, leader, author, podcaster, or whatever, to be all oh, I'm following this person, I'm following that person. Like, no, you and I can know the truth. We can know God directly. We can have a connection with Christ directly. And um, I mean, that doesn't mean we don't listen to the people, read other things, sure. But we don't, you know, you don't, you don't become just sort of like this disciple of this other person. And and I think there's something in us where we sometimes we want to do that. It's maybe safer, safer to do that. It feels easier to do that. But I would really encourage people not to do that. Like, be your own guru, right? You know the right things to do. You know the way to go. Um, I think this is actually what Paul is saying when he says, you know, we have the mind of Christ. He's, he's wanting us to recognize that we each individually have the mind of Christ, and we don't need, you know, anyone else to, uh, to teach us something or show us something. Elena, that was such a fantastic question um, and such rich conversation. Thank you for bringing it to us. What do y'all say? Should we tune into our Heretic of the Week? It's the Heretic of the Week. Hi, my name is Curtis Holtzen, and I'm a heretic. Hi, Curtis. <laughs> nice. <laughs> well, well, well. Curtis. Holson, welcome to the Heretic Happy Hour, my friend. Listen, you know, we always have to start off by asking the most important question. Uh, if you're going to be our Heretic of the Week, we need to know, why would anybody call you a heretic? Yeah, good question. Uh, I think the main reason why someone would, would think I'm a heretic is because uh, I believe that, that God actually has faith in humanity, that it's not just us who have faith in God. Is that God trusts us, that God has hopes in us, that God believes in us. That's kind of heretical for some people. Yeah. Yeah, I can see why. Um, <laughs> so um, what do you mean? Like, let's unpack that a little bit. So I can right away, it feels like the, it, the when you just said that, like the idea that, okay, God has faith and God trusts, I'm assuming you mean he, he trusts us, right? Um, mm -hmm. So does that kind of, mess around with sort of like God's foreknowledge? And um, I mean, is that kind of why people feel like this is heretical? Because you're kind of pushing back on some of our assumptions about God and, yeah, and I, nature? I'll, I'll, let me throw a quick jab in there too, to, to piggyback on what Keith said. And that's this, that if, if, if God, if the Holy Spirit dwells in us ostensibly, right, then, then, then your premise mm -hmm. is completely on point because God must trust us if he puts himself in us. Yeah, good. Yeah, I like that, that, that God would uh, commit to something so radical as uh, placing God's very being within us. 
that is a uh, a faithful act. The idea of of God having having faith in us stems from the idea that uh, God seems to have created the world for some sort of purpose, and it's a purpose that God has, uh, at least if we can trust Scripture on this, has decided to partner with us to do. Uh, God is a God who who likes to um, engage in covenant, to to make treaties with people, and so God enters into this covenant with uh, the church, with Israel, with individuals, and so gives us these tasks to perform. And we seem to have the freedom to be able to complete the task or fail at the task. And I think it makes a difference to God whether we do these things well or not. And then that jumps into your question about foreknowledge. Uh, I, I happen to be an open theist. So now I've just doubled up on my, yeah, that answers everything. I know I'm doubling down on my heresy. So I'll see your heresy and raise you one. There you go. So the the idea that uh, God would would partner with people seems to presuppose that that we're genuinely free to to be able to meet God's expectations or to fail God's expectations, uh, and this freedom is only possible if. The future is genuinely open to, to some extent, that there are uh, genuine possibilities. Right. So now, just real quick, you know, just thinking about this this idea of the faith of God or the trust of God. Um, I mean, there's a verse, right? Galatians something, Galatians two something that says that we're justified not by works of law, but by the faith of Jesus, not faith, faith in Jesus. Jesus but by the faith of Jesus, right? Does this play into what you're saying? And this is this where, where it says God is faithful, right? God is faithful. So what does faithful mean? Full of faith, right? Yeah, good. Um, so that whenever we see the, the term faithful, it can be translated just as easily as trustworthy. And so it's one of those kind of dynamic words that can mean that someone can be trusted or someone can exhibit trust. So with the, the passage you mentioned from, uh, from Galatians, yeah, there's some debate about whether that means faith in Jesus or the faith of Jesus. Uh, I think it's Richard Hayes who has an entire book just unpacking that, that passage. But there's some, there's some interesting, there, there's many uh, interesting passages in the New Testament where uh, Paul especially talks about God trusting or entrusting him. Uh, you have 1 Corinthians 4, uh, where uh, Paul says that it's it's required that stewards be found trustworthy. And here it talks about being trustworthy, being found trustworthy by God. Or uh, Galatians 2, where Paul talks about he was entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, and Peter was entrusted to the gospel to the circumcised. Now, who's going to trust entrust either of these men with the gospel other than God? There, there's in the Old Testament, uh, Numbers 12 talks about where uh, Moses was, uh, God says, Moses was entrusted with all my house. Um, so this, this idea of, of being found trustworthy or faithful uh, I think it just makes sense that if God wants us to be faithful, that is trustworthy, then there's a sense in which God trusts us. I mean, it, it just makes sense to me. Yeah, 
I like that. So, um, yeah, it was, and you know what? It's funny, Curtis, is that now that, now that I hear you saying this, and, and I mean, it's sort of like, I think we typically read these kinds of verses and we just kind of keep reading. We don't stop to think, well, you know, okay, yeah, I get it. Moses wasn't trusted. Paul wasn't trusted. Peter wasn't trusted. Okay, yeah, I get this. But, you know, you don't stop as you have done and, and said, ask the question, well, wait a second. What does it mean that God trusted them with something? And, and then, yeah, I mean, that kind of, that kind of implies that God has to trust. God has to have faith and he trusts and he has faith in us as human beings. So what are the implications of this? Like, if, if we really start to meditate on this, what does this mean for us? Like, what is it we need to, that we're missing? What is it we're not understanding about this idea of God trusting and having faith? Yeah, I think, I think there are a lot of implications. I, I think an important one is making a distinction uh, between love and trust. Uh, I think God never stops loving us. I don't think there's anything we can do to, to damage God's, God's love in us. But I think there's things we can do to damage the relationship we have with God. And that relationship is really a relationship of, of mutual trust. Uh, we can frustrate God. We can make God angry. We can delight God. And I think all of these have to do with the idea of how trustworthy we are. Uh, I think about the idea of, of maturity. You think about Christian maturity. And I started to unpack this idea of what does it mean to be mature? And I can't think of anything better than the idea of being trustworthy. If you think, I, I don't know if either of you have kids, but yes. if you think about, yeah, if you think about, oh, my child is mature, I think that means that you can trust your child. Or if you think about that, your child's kind of immature, that tends to mean, well, I can't really leave the child alone. Don't give them matches. Uh, you know, these sort of things, because you can't really trust the kid. Now, you, you still you still love your kids, absolutely. But the relationship is going to be more intimate. It's going to be uh, a stronger connection when you can trust the person you love. Uh, and we can talk about uh, a marriage relationship. You can think about that, that you uh, genuinely love your spouse, but if you can't trust your spouse, mm -hmm. that relationship is going to be damaged until that can be dealt with. Right. And, right. and so one of the implications here, I, let me, I'll just finish this real quick. I, I don't preach much, but I did a sermon uh, on this idea of God having faith. And afterwards I had a, a gentleman come up to me and say, I've always struggled with the idea of sin and God may be loving me less because of my sin. And I've wondered about how this damages the relationship. And he was, he was kind of uh, uh, joyful about the idea that, that our sin, that our, our, how we frustrate God doesn't affect God's love in us, but it does affect how much God can trust us. And so that trust can be repaired. We don't have to worry about God's love, but we do need to work on the idea of God being able to trust us and entrust us with certain missions. There, uh, there, there was just one, one more question that I wanted to ask is that uh, in one of your, one of the people who wrote um, uh, a, a review of your book, he said, you're one of the most courageous and perceptive critics, uh, critics of classical theism. And, and, and I'm finding that to be, you know, pretty accurate in the context of this conversation. But if, if you were to say, if, if you were to respond to this, would you say that you are indeed a critic 
of classical theism, or are you um, more along the lines of unpacking it rather than deconstructing it? Yeah, good question. Uh, I I think I'm I'm critical of it in a respectful way. Uh, I, you know, I appreciate the history. I appreciate uh, the profound thinking behind classical theists, especially uh, Aquinas and uh, and Scotus and 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 some of these 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 major thinkers. Uh, but I my assumption is is they were working with certain ideas that they had a hard time getting past. And it was some of these kind of platonic categories that for something to be perfect, it can't experience change or uh, that, that God must have a, a definitive knowledge of every event that ever takes place. And so th- these things made sense, but they really kind of gutted the idea of what it means to, to have a dynamic relationship with God, uh, or, or to be honest, if everything in our lives are planned out and foreordained ahead of time, then even our relationship with other humans are not real. We're, we're just, we're just in a sense, uh, cogs in the machine of, of whatever God has, uh, determined. So I, I do see myself as, I, I hope it comes across that I'm a respectful, uh, critic of classical theism. No, I think so. I, I totally get that. I, I, what I love, what I, what I appreciate is um, the implications of what you're saying about the idea that God has faith in me, that God trusts me. That does something really different. It shifts things a little bit in the relationship, you know, dynamic between us and God. But again, I think, I think it's totally su- supported by Scripture. I mean, just Scripture we've even talked about just now. Um, and it does, I think, it's helpful to reframe the relationship in this way that God does have hope, that God does believe in us. Like, not, again, not just the idea that I believe in God, but that God believes in me. God right. believes in you. Um, and wow, there, there's a lot of power in that. There's actually even a song. Uh, there's a guy named Pierce Pettis who sings a song that says, God believes in you. And, um, mm. uh, and I, I sang that once. I played that once. We used to do a ministry to people living or homeless and people living in motels in, in Southern California. Mm. And, um, and I learned the chords to that, and I sang that song. And, man, you could just see every face uh, just light up with the idea to these people who have so, so little hope to have it flipped around on them and to hear a song that says, God believes in you. Right. It's powerful. You know what I mean? It's empowering and it it makes you realize, oh yeah, that's right. I have a I have a relationship with God. And then, you know, when Jesus gives us this Abba Father idea that he's a he's a loving father, you know, when you have a father who's loving, you want to you want your father to be proud, right? You want you want to know that your father trusts in you and has faith in you and believes in you, and you don't want to let him down, right? It's not like it's obedience based on fear. It's an obedience, like Jesus says, it's yeah, based tr- on love. Trust is empowering. Right. Exactly. It's, it's, you know, when you, uh, you know, like my kids, one of my, one of my sons right now is out driving my car <laughs> and I have a very nice car, you know, and, but, but he's, he feels empowered because I trust him to, to handle my car, to bring it back in one piece. So. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Good. Keith, one of the, when you were talking about that that idea of 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 belief, 
I, I say this in the book. I've been told God loves me so many times. I've almost grown numb to it. I'm, yeah. I'm not sure what it means anymore. But when I think about the idea that, that God loves me, and not only loves me, but believes in me, mm-hmm. I think there's something really kind of powerful about that, 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 that you were starting to, to, to tap into. There's, there's something empowering. There's the idea, again, of, of, of God entrusting us with things. Um, th- my, growing up, I came from a, a family that had a lot of addiction problems, um, and that's actually what got me in the church. I didn't come from a Christian home, but uh, the church was a place I could get away from home, honestly. And so I saw my mom especially uh, loving my sister, even though my sister uh, had a, a heroin addiction. But I saw that my mom never really believed in her and couldn't trust her. And now, the good news is my, my sister overcame her addiction uh, she's one of the few who actually was able to get past a heroin addiction and uh, and is someone who who we can trust and we do believe in. But there's something really powerful about about having someone believe in you, having someone trust you, having someone entrust things to you that that I think is is conveyed in, in some ways that I don't want to say more powerful than love, but that uh, attach to love and make make that idea of love more robust. Yeah, I agree. I think it, it becomes something a lot more concrete and tangible. And um, and thank you. I, I think your book and this concept is really, really beautiful, very helpful. Um, yeah, I encourage people to go check it out. So listen, um, we've enjoyed this conversation. If people want to know more about you, um, you know, how they get a hold of you, anything you're working on, they, they should know about, um, you know, and let us know about, you know, where we can uh, get hold of the book. Uh, yeah, so they can, people can find me on Twitter at Curtis Holtzen. Uh, you can find me on Facebook at Curtis Holtzen. One of the, one of the silly things I'm working on right now is I actually am starting to do ice cream reviews on Instagram. How about that? It's a, uh, <laughs> oh, I got to follow that. Uh, a sidestep. That's called uh, Eat the Whole Pint uh, <laughs> because that's what I do. Um, that's great. So if you care about ice cream reviews, check me out there. All right. um, uh, my book is, is found uh, uh, anywhere good books are sold. Uh, Amazon, it, it's uh, uh, published by InterVarsity Press. Uh, and uh, my, next, my next book I'm starting to work on is uh, I'm, I'm starting to work through the idea of what does it mean for death to be the enemy of God? Um, and I'm trying to make sense of that, uh, given a lot of the, the things that we understand, or given a lot of the general ideas that are taught in Christianity, especially the idea that you die and you instantly go to heaven or you're, you're, you, you have the beatific vision. And I'm, I'm trying to understand, given these ideas, just how uh, death is genuinely the enemy of God. So that's where I'm, that's where I'm going next. Wow. Oh, man, that sounds great. Well, when you're done with that, please let us know. We'd love to talk again. Will do. It's a pleasure meeting you, Curtis. Yeah, I had a good time. Thanks, guys. Curtis, well, thank you so much, man. I appreciate your time. Thank you for talking to us. Thank you for writing this really interesting book about how the, the idea that God trusts in us. That's actually pretty fascinating. So, um, yeah, thanks so much. And everyone go check out the book. Yeah, and you know what I'm going to say? 
I say, I think I've said it before, before we move into our, what is this, our third parable? I just love this show, the fact that we get to meet people that I've never heard of and then have such a rich, wonderful conversation. Um, I, I just love the fact that this show has opened up the possibilities of, of people hearing new voices that have such a unique perspective on faith and spirituality and life. And so, Curtis, thank you for coming on. I, I hope everyone enjoyed that. And I hope everyone is ready for the rich man and Lazarus. Oh, my God. Who the hell cares? Well, apparently our listeners do. I mean, they're still <laughs> listening. So I'm so I'm assuming someone cares about this parable. <laughs> Oh man, I hope so. Anyway, so so uh, yeah, we're we're looking today. Today's parable is um, the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. And number one, I think it's very important to point out the fact that, and I'll just say, I think this is one we each chose a parable, right, for the series. And I, I think I, I'm the one that chose this one, and I chose it specifically so that we could emphasize the fact that it is a parable. Um, because a lot of Christians walk around acting as if the story of the rich man and Lazarus is like actually sort of a documentary. It really happened. And Jesus is telling about these actual people and there's something that really did happen. He's telling us about hell, Keith. No, it is not about hell. It's, it's so, so not about hell. And uh, I'm sure we're going to get into that as we go forward. But um, we want to look at this parable. It is a parable and talk about the ways it's a parable and why Jesus talked about it and really what the point is. If it, here's the thing. If the point isn't about hell, and I want to say that it's not, um, then what is the point? Because there is a very interesting point I think we uh, we should pay attention to. Well, what's interesting is that, I mean, they, they say it's not a parable, right? Because there's an actually named figure, and generally that's not the case. Is that why they say it's not a parable, even though the structure is kind of the same? I think it just doesn't use the word parable. Like, yeah. I, I, did a, I did a quick search, and, and most most of the parables will say, um, and he spoke to them in a parable. Saying, yeah, and he spoke yeah. to them in a parable. Like in like we the chapter right before when we talked about the parable of the lost, um, in verse three, you know, he told them this parable. So the word isn't used, but it is an uh, illustrative story. So this this parable comes from or is a retelling or a rethinking of other source material, right? Egyptian, Jewish, uh, a bunch of other ones. Are those considered parables as well? Because I mean it, it does strike me as odd that we wouldn't consider this a parable when it's borrowed from other folklore. And, and yeah, and we should bring that out. Like that, that is one of the things. Like I, um, I brought that out of my book, Jesus Undefeated, because we're you know, it's about hell, and that this this parable, this story in Luke is quite often used by Christians to argue is this is telling us something about the afterlife. Um, and so I, I brought out the fact, like you just said, Matt, that this is a quote, a doctoral dissertation from the University of Amsterdam identified seven versions of this parable circulating in the first century. So Jesus did not invent this. This is something that was circulating around that time, um, this idea of a, a rich man and a poor man whose uh, fortunes are reversed in the afterlife. Uh, and so they're all, that, that kind of a story, that it is a parable, that kind of a parable was told in the first century um, by different religious sources to emphasize, to make a, a different point. That's the point of a parable. You tell the story and you use the story to make a point about something. Um, Jesus is making a point about something, and it, again, uh, it's not about hell. Well, I, I wonder sometimes if the whole thing about this is a parable was something that just kind of fell on the cutting room floor. I mean, it's because it's clear that it's a parable. It, it's just not, it doesn't have the same setup 
as other so parables. I, I wonder in that sense, Derek, that's a good point. So, and I'm curious what Katie and Matthew think about this idea too, because I think this, this is a possibility, I think, maybe. Maybe, maybe the author, Luke, um, of this gospel, when he shares this, doesn't say, by the way, this is a parable, because people contemporary to them would have known that this was a very popular story they've all heard seven different times. And this is Jesus telling that story to make a different point. Like, in other words, he wouldn't need to call it out because it would have almost been like, here's that story again. Yep. Good point. Yeah. I mean, I think, so the word parable is a Greek word. So we're not going to find that word in like the Egyptian story or in a story written in um, Aramaic or in Hebrew um, or, you know, another, another language other than Greek. The, the Jewish equivalent is mashal. Um, and so that's an example story, but, you know, example stories, I mean, they're kind of like, they're kind of like um, more radical brown bag children's sermons of the ancient world um, that, <laughs> um, that are, that are fictional stories used to illustrate some kind of point. Um, so those are certainly common. Um, the yeah. Parables do exist outside of the new Testament, but I think the new Testament really, um, that's our, that's probably the, our, our, one of our biggest sources yeah. of the word being used so often and uh, only in Matthew, Mark and Luke, not in John at all. Oh, there's no parables in John. None. Nope. Oh. No, no, no parables in John. John's like the weird cousin that shows yeah. up once yeah, every completely, <laughs> completely. Um, and so, but, I mean, mo- many parables are using everyday and especially agricultural um, elements to yeah. them to illustrate the point, like the parables of Jesus. And so, I think this this is unique in that it doesn't really do that. Mm. Yeah. So yeah, there there are a lot of things about it that are that set it apart from uh, some of the other parables. But I mean, like the parable of the um, the lost son isn't sort of an agricultural one either. It's not talking about seeds or plants or no, but it's taking place on a big estate. There's there's farm work going on. He's with the swine. Oh, yeah. He's you know so it's this, yeah, yeah, it's, yeah. it's daily life on earth, not this kind of more fantastical tale. Yeah, uh, uh, having to do with afterlife. Yeah, and I wanted to say something about uh, like Matt. You you call attention to the fact that one of the other things that stands out in this parable. Um, is the idea that, well, someone is named in the parable. And what I, I uh, think is so fascinating about the fact that the, the, the only person in the parable that has a name is this homeless guy, this poor beggar. He has a name. Uh, he, you know, we know his name. In other words, his name is known by Jesus and it's Lazarus. But the rich man doesn't have a name. And I think that's so fascinating because like, you know, think about in our society, you know, people know Bill Gates. They know Elon Musk. They know you know, Jeff Bezos, Keep because they're, they're mega rich. I'm talking about millionaires, billionaires, right? The, the super rich people, um, everyone knows those guys. You see their face, you know, you know their name. But that homeless guy in the corner, I don't know his name. But in this story, it's reversed. I love this inversion. And I think I, for me, I think it's almost because uh, I think the point of the parable is more about the way that we that the rich specifically tend to ignore the poor. And this inversion is, I think, intended to subversively say, Hey, in the kingdom economy, it's upside down. The famous people are the poor, are the poor beggars, and the the rich people are unknown and sort of anonymous. Who's that guy? But but again, I think the I would say I don't know if you guys would agree or not, but um, I would say that the point of the parable is really about it is about sort of economics in the sense that just before this parable is told in Luke, um, Jesus makes this statement about loving God and loving money. You can't love both. 
And then right after he says that, there's a point, that, uh, there's a little thing that says the Pharisees were upset because the Pharisees loved money. And then he tells this parable. So I think this parable does kind of dovetail into this conversation about loving money rather than loving other people, other, other human beings, not valuing other people who are who you're like your, you know, people in the community around you, surrounding you, uh, but value, valuing your own wealth more than you value that. And to me, I think that's sort of the general point of the parable. And, and that the point of the inversion is sort of a warning, like, hey, be careful, because God knows the name of that beggar. He cares about these people, and you should too. I, I, I agree with all that. Let me kind of ask a devil's advocate question and say, okay, so we mentioned all the other um, kind of sources and the other stories, and we mentioned that they are about the afterlife. Why is this one then not about the afterlife? Well, I don't know that the other ones are about the afterlife. I mean, I, I'll be honest. I don't know how the other ones turn the story and what the point of the other parables are. I mean, uh, I, all I know is that there's archaeological evidence that, you know, there's seven different versions in the first century floating around, but they could have been about different things, right? I can. I have two in front of me, so I can summarize that. Oh, there that, you go, please. In please a minute or two. Do it. Well, I, I'm, one of the things that I really wonder, and it's sort of like a hidden indicator, right? Lazarus. Why Lazarus? That Because that name has huge significance and huge implications in the book of John. So what is it about Lazarus? Are they the same guy? And Jesus is using his friend, his, his childhood friend, as uh, a, an illustrative template? I don't know. It's just it's just one of those things. It's like a hidden indicator. And and I'm one of these guys that I say, listen, if you pay attention to what's on the lines, you don't have to read between the lines. But this is one of those ones that's actually between the lines that I'm like, "Eh, you know, there's something there's something to that. I mean, it's an interesting question. I I I mean, I don't know who knows, but I I think Lazarus, as we see him in John. Seems to be a guy that has some property and owns some land. and Yeah, he's very wealthy. It kind of makes you wonder if it's like a morality tale for... Maybe, yeah. An, an unsubtle morality tale for his friend. Maybe. Yeah, there you go. Maybe he was standing there. <laughs> well, wait a second. The, the Lazarus in the, in this parable is not a landowner. This is a guy who ate, from the, ate with the dogs, right? That's what I'm saying. Yeah, so it would be odd like to, to, to tell a story where your rich friend is the poor guy in the story and yeah. the rich guy is the bad guy. Like, I mean, if, I mean, I tell you what, if that was going on, there's some layers now. Like this feels like this was actually yeah. more for Lazarus, his friend that he kind of like, like Katie was saying more like, Hey, you know, Lazarus, uh, think about this a little bit, but I mean, I don't know. I don't think so. And we need, um, we need Libby Schrader to. Yes, actually. Assist us with this, with her Mary Martha and Lazarus knowledge. Um, it's a little, yeah, I haven't done any critical study. I think that I, I wonder that question every time too, Derek. And I've um, I've been too lazy to look up an answer. So um, I'll have some homework cut out for me uh, for the future. <laughs> but yeah, what do you, I mean, what are, what are your thoughts on the meaning of Lazarus in the, in the story, Derek? This is my, my take that I believe that it's the same guy. And I think that Jesus is making two separate points. He's making a point to the the priests that um, that were, um, you know, basically trying to gig him on a question. But I think that there, like like Keith said, this has many layers. That 
if Lazarus is Jesus's childhood friend, you know, along with Mary and Martha, is this a coachable moment for Lazarus? And and that's and, and you know and again this is all conjecture and speculation but I just think that it makes a really good it makes a you know it makes a really fun yeah. narrative it, compl- it problematizes things yes yeah <laughs> well um kind of um going back to Matt's devil's advocate question which I think is a really good question yeah. um it may help us just to summarize this this parable for a moment or two sure um so it's Luke. 16, it's verses 19 through 31, I believe, yeah, through 31. Yeah, so the story, there's a rich man dressed in purple and fine linen, and then a very poor man named Lazarus. Um, They both die, and in uh, very vivid descriptions of of the afterlife, and uh, Abraham, like Father Abraham, uh, meets the rich man and basically tells him, um, your your good deeds don't outweigh your, your bad deeds. Um, for why you are on earth. So you have to sit here and kind of in the chasm, in the chasm of hell and be in agony. Um, but then Lazarus, who was very poor, gets some comfort and he gets uh, kind of riches in, uh, in the afterlife. Um, and so we have uh, Abraham as another, and as another named character who actually appears like in the story mm-hmm. to um, give these warnings. Yeah. To, um, to Lazarus not to Lazarus, to the rich man. Um, so, so I think Matt's question, like if the, are the other stories about the judgment of the living and the dead and kinda. Um, so I read over uh, and I, I don't read any of these languages, so I'm reading them in English, but I read over the Egyptian story. And this was, this is interesting. It was written on the backside of a papyrus uh, around the year 46 to 47 CE. So um, just after really the lifetime of Jesus. Um, so it's fairly contemporary. I mean, it's from the first century. And um, it has a God in the afterlife who's judging um, two people who go, uh, who have died. And the there's a poor man from Memphis. And then there's a very rich man. And Osiris, I think it's Osiris who is uh, judging them uh, in the afterlife. Um, and the rich man uh, who was brought to the underworld, his sins were balanced against his good deeds and his sins are found to be more numerous. And then the poor man, his good deeds are found to be that they outweigh his uh, bad deeds. Um, And the same is very much true in the Sanhedrin story of the Jewish version. But what I noticed in both of these, I haven't read the other five um, that Keith mentioned, um, but I think it's worth saying that I don't think that Jesus, it's not like Jesus is taking these stories and copying them word for word. They're all dealing with a similar motif. And that motif is good deeds, bad deeds, right? And, um, and rich, poor, there seems to be a rich, poor um, theme throughout these. So I think my, my take, and again, this is without critical study, but my take on all of these is that they're set in the afterlife that is presumed. There's kind of a presumed um, heaven, hell afterlife, and they're set there for narrative value because that's when it's like if a parable is meant to shock the reader, we get really shocked by this setting. Um, and so I think that the afterlife provides the setting for us to do a better job while we're here on earth. Yeah, yeah. So I think it's the setting. I don't know that it's about the afterlife, but the afterlife is the setting for the story. Yeah. The presumed setting. Oh, so one one possibility. No, I, I like I like that differentiation because it, it, it does change it does change how we approach it because we tend to we tend to be a little bit, I think, myopic. Um, and say, oh, because it's in the afterlife, it's about how the afterlife shakes out. 
instead of saying, no, we're going to use this setting in order to tell a story. Now, here, here's the thing that really gets me, because the, the, if the whole thing is about hell, which we know it isn't, what, what did he do to land himself there, the rich guy? He didn't pray the prayer. No, he didn't I mean, pray the know, prayer. So, well, I mean, you know, it, 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 you know he, wasn't, he wasn't cited for his adultery. Right. He wasn't, um, you know, cited for his riotous living or his wine bibbing or, or for or eating swine mouth. or yeah, eating mouth. his yeah. potty mouth. None of, none, none of that. It, it, this all comes back to how this guy ignored the plight of someone who was downtrodden, right? And that, and 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 this is what I what I find really interesting when you um, uh, overlay this with modern Christianity, because everybody's always talking about, well, you do this and you're going to hell. You do this and you're going to hell. Well, this guy didn't do any of these things, but here, but here he is. He's he's in hell because he mistreated people, but the the people who are really he- uh, you know uh, into the hell narrative, they are the ones who most quickly dismiss the oppressed and the disenfranchised. Yeah, the the thing that gets missed often, I think we mentioned this when we talked about Matthew twenty five because it's a similar kind of thing in the parable, right? So there's this judgment, and the righteous go this way, and the the unrighteous go this other way, and suffer these different fates. But what is the criteria for whether or not you're, it's again, like you said, it's not, did you have the right doctrine? Did you pray the right prayer? Did you, were you gay? Were you straight? No, it's none of these things. And this is like Katie was saying, right? The parables always have this sort of shock factor. If if there's a shock factor, I think the shock factor in Matthew 25 and the shock factor here in Luke 16 uh, is the same. It's sort of like um, the thing that God cares about so much the thing that's almost going to weigh your soul in the balance is, did you care about other people? Bingo. Did you have compassion for the poor? Did you care about those who are in prison? Did, could you walk by some another human being laying there on the side of the road naked and, and starving and, and, and begging for water and just ignore them and keep walking? That's the criteria, not yeah. all the things we would expect. And that to me is the shocking nature of both of these parables. Well, yeah, in a verse, I mean, it's the, the parable lays it out in a really... I mean, a really kind of shocking way or a really kind of obvious way, maybe. Right. So Lazarus is at the gate of the rich man. Yeah. Like he's on his property, you know, begging. He's covered with sores. He can only eat what falls from the man's table. I mean, like they're laying it out and like Jesus is really laying it on really thick here. Like he has not only not only the chance at the gate, but at the table with the sores and um, the dogs come and lick his sores. Um, and then the poor man, and then the poor man dies, right? So it's like Lazarus has like four chances every day. Not Lazarus, the rich man has four chances every day to help Lazarus and doesn't do it. Yeah. And it's like, so I think the for me, I mean, as I as I kind of read myself into the parable, I, I'm always asking myself, what do I not see that's right in front of me? Mm-hmm. You know, what is what is it that I'm not uh, paying attention to? Because it's so easy to overlook and it can be really overwhelming too. Yeah. Right. And so I'm, you know, I'm always kind of cognizant of that in my own life. And, you know, I had a, I had a moment a um, couple of months ago in the, in where I live, they were clearing out um, a tent city. Yeah. 
one morning. So they asked, uh, they asked uh, people, uh, especially clergy, to come and be present. So I went and uh, was present. We kind of were witnesses. There wasn't much that we could do to stop clearing out the tent city. But because of COVID, I just really haven't left, I haven't driven around very much. I mean, this was a couple of months ago, too, when things were really locked down. And so when I went, when I parked and went over um, to the tent city and found colleagues and just to be present with people, I was like, oh my gosh, I didn't realize that this density had gotten so big. And so it was, it was just this moment for me to be mindful, like the parable shocks me to be, um, that I didn't see what was literally right in front of me in my own city, which is not that big. This is, I don't live in like New York or something, right? This was, it's very, it was very visible once I opened my eyes to it. Yeah. And I, I think you make a good point too, Katie, um, that in the parable, the rich man, it's, the rich man doesn't just casually, like one day on his way to a meeting, he ignored the poor man and then boom, the hammer came down and he goes to hell. Like that's not what happens. It's, it's actually, uh, as, it's, as it says in the parable, and as you pointed out, it's a consistent ig- ignoring of the, of the poor man, right? He, you pass him every day when you come in and out of your property. Um, you know, he's there when you're, you know, he's getting crumbs off your table. He's there when you're walking your dog or whatever, right? Like he, this, this poor person, uh, Lazarus, is um is right there all the time and so you get the you get the sense that what's really going on is not a casual oh i kind of blew it today oh yeah i should have stopped and done something it's like it's a it's an intentional pattern of ignoring lazarus right if intentionally just saying i don't care and i'm i'm gonna day after day after day after day continue not to care right i think that's that's an interesting thing too because otherwise these kinds of parables can kind of be used the other way, right? To make us feel guilty, right? Oh, I don't do enough. And oh, that one time I didn't do something. Now God, God hates me. Like, I don't think that's at all what the point is. I think it really is more of like not having a consistent attitude of ignoring people who are in need. Well, and I think too, like, I'll just speak uh, personally about my own experiences is, is that like, I mean, if you take the, the, the common evangelical interpretation of this parable, when I, when I believed in that worldview, that was my world, I didn't, I didn't do shit for, for poor people. <laughs> right. It's almost like, I mean, I'm more motivated by stories like this. When you take out the fearful eschatology and the fearful afterlife, and, but it still motivates me to do something right. for people, oppressed people, uh, people who are struggling. Like it makes it, I mean, I don't, I don't have the fear of, of eternal hellfire. I'm a universalist and I, I don't have that, but I still am motivated to, I don't want to be the rich guy who ignores my comment, yeah. my, you know, my, my fellow person, you know, the person on the street, the per, you know, when you remove fear from the equation, you almost get more motivated by these shocking parables. And it's almost backwards. Like you'd think, you think, oh, if you have, you might be the rich man, you better get out there and do something. <laughs> I, it, it doesn't really work. It only motivates you so far. Right. You know, the, the one thing that really, another reading between the lines thing, it says that they both died. And apparently they died around about the same time. And so I'm wondering if maybe Lazarus just got tired of this rich guy walking <laughs> over him. I think you're reading into it. <laughs> and, 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 and got up and, you know, and did the bath salts thing and tried to eat the rich man's face off. Yeah, whoa. You know, and then the rich man's bodyguards beat Lazarus to death and everybody dies. You know, you die, I die, everybody dies. That's the director's cut version, I think. Uh, 
I just had to throw that in there. That, that it, it's pointless, but I think it's that was funny. in the Nagamati Library. They haven't translated those scrolls yet, but we're going to get to that version, I'm sure. I feel like we could make a game of Clue about that. Like, who did it? It was in a synagogue <laughs> with a scroll across the head. Right. <laughs> I think we should. Yeah, I think we should do that with who killed Ananias and Sapphira. That's another question. Right. Um, as we're, you know, as we're. Um, kind of thinking about parables, I think it may be helpful just to know uh, for listeners that 60% of the parables have to do with economics. 60%. That's a really big number. So more than half of the parables have to do explicitly with economics. Um, I think this one included, uh, uh, obviously, um, has to do with economics. And so all of the, you know, all of the other sort of lessons from parables are only make up 40% in their diversity. Yeah, that's a great point. That's a great point. Did I know that? I'm sure there's more we can unpack, and maybe we will in the bonus round, but but folks are going to have to wait for that. But before we land this, uh, this, this uh, what do you call it, sinking ship of a podcast here, we do have a website, and we do have a bookstore at that website. It is heretichappyhour.com. If you go up to the bookstore, we have books from former heretics of the week, they are typically 15% off. They support the show and they support your pocket by being cheaper than, than where you can get elsewhere. So again, the website, heretichappyhour.com. We got a bookstore. We got swag. We got, uh, we got all sorts of shit. So go check that out. And yes, who lands a ship? We land a ship. That's right. I said we're going to land a ship. We're landing this land? ship. Let's land that ship. <laughs> it's like queuing up a text. <laughs> my, my family owned a boat store and there were more than once we kind of landed a ship on the shore so it's, it's definitely possible yeah, yeah, yeah by 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 accident or wind or whatever but, um y'all the conversation won't end here uh, we continue all of these conversations in our really really fabulous facebook group it's free to everyone uh, heresy after hours so come join that great uh, facebook group two thousand over two thousand people um, lost souls like yourself asking really great questions. So I'm sure we'll be talking about this parable and more there. And we also have a Facebook group that's exclusive for our Patreon members. Did someone say Patreon? Oh, hell yes. Thank you so much, everyone who support us on Patreon. We love you so much. And we really appreciate you because uh, you make it possible for us to keep doing this. Uh, we love over uh, on Patreon providing bonus interview footage, bonus conversations, bonus podcasts. Um, you know, uh, footage, I guess, as Derek would say. And, um, so if you would go over to patreon.com slash heretic happy hour, if you can't get enough and really who can, you can support us at the two ladder level, um, $10, $25. We have different perks. I mean, you can get, um, PDFs of our books, uh, quarterly zoom calls, uh, all kinds of great stuff. Go over there, check it out. Thank you all of you who already support us. And I want to thank you in advance. For all of you who are going to, at the end of this podcast, maybe even right now, you're in the process of typing in patreon.com slash heretic happy hour, and you're choosing your favorite tier. And I want you to know right now, waves of love are pouring towards you right now. Thank you so much. I see that hand. God bless. Amen. <laughs> that was a, a, a good altar call and a, and a good offering uh, call. But anyway, as Matt said, this uh, this great sinking ship that we call the Heretic Happy Hour podcast, if you want to support this and polish the brass on this sinking ship, or if it's like the Hindenburg, add some gas to it, come out to iTunes and give us a five-star rating because, God damn it, we deserve it. We we work hard for the money. I'm just, and we love you. I'm huh? picturing us all in a different ship of choice. 
now I want some cartoons of the of like <laughs> Derek in a balloon. Oh yeah. Yeah. The pilot of Hindenburg, that's me. <laughs>